So last week, we saw how Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine and the scene he made in the temple court were both events or signs that pointed to the reality that new creation was beginning to make its way onto the scene. In fact, that's kind of what John is really getting at throughout the course of his gospel, is new creation. That's an enormous point that he is trying to make. Now, one of the reasons that these events were necessary was because the old had been so corrupted that it was barely recognizable. But more importantly, the new had to come because the new was always the goal. It was always the point. And what is new creation? It is, it is the space where heaven and earth come together. That's what new creation is. It's the life of God. And, and, and that was always the goal in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that, that earth would be a place where both God and humanity dwell together in perfect union. It's always been the goal. And that's what we mean when we talk about new creation, that the life of God would be made manifest here on earth. Now, new creation is something that shows up all over the New Testament. But it comes into full view when we look at the final chapters of the book of Revelation where the old is described as passing away. And I think a better way, I know a better way to understand this is that everything we see, the earth and the fullness thereof, will be purified. That's the point that Revelation is making. Now that final event... It's somewhere in the future, but as we have seen, and what we will continue to see is that the stuff of that event seems to be showing up all over the place in the ministry of Jesus. And it's the sort of stuff that even we have access to today because of God's indwelling presence, both individually and corporately together as the body of Christ. So that's where this whole thing is heading now, I haven't referred to a movie in a long time. I haven't. I haven't. I've been pretty good. But I was, I was working my way through the passage this week and, and wrestling with this whole new creation thing. I kept on thinking about Back to the Future. You're probably wondering why. Why would you be thinking about Back to the Future? Well, if you remember, Doc Brown, he invented a time machine. And Marty McFly accidentally used it And he ended up, if you remember, safe and sound back in good old 1955. And what happened when he first arrived was that he was mistaken for some sort of alien invader when he crashed through old man Peabody's farm. And a sailor, because some of the clothes he was wearing looked more like a life jacket than anything someone would have worn in 1955. What's the point? Why am I bringing this up? Marty didn't fit in, if you remember. And the reason he didn't fit in was because he brought something with him from a world that existed in a time and space that was very real, but had not yet arrived. It was very real, but it had not yet arrived. Now, I'm sure this illustration breaks down, but there's a few things here that I think will help us make sense of what we're about to see unfold in the text this morning. So I want you to take that illustration, I want you to put it over here for a minute, and I want you to carry it with you as we walk through the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 3. We're going to work through the entire chapter this morning, okay? So that means we're not going to cover every single detail, right? It's more of a broad brushstroke of John chapter 3, but we are going to talk about the highlights, okay? Some of those important things that pop out and some of those important themes that pop out. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 3. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 in this first section. And right now, I just want to look at the first few verses there. And it starts out like this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do, do unless God is with him couple of things right there that stand out in those first two verses. First thing, we're introduced to Nicodemus. The text says that he is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, known as the Sanhedrin, which was the highest legal, legislative, and judicial body among the Jewish people. 
He was also a Pharisee, which means that he was a member of one of the most important and influential religious and political parties in Judaism. In other words, he was a strict adherent to the law of the Old Testament, and he believed in a bodily resurrection. That's a little bit about Nicodemus. Long story short, he was a significant individual who knew his stuff, which is probably why he came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night. But, but John loves a good double meaning, as we've been talking about over the course of the last few weeks. So while the text implies that he's meeting Jesus in secret because, because he's a big deal and he doesn't necessarily want to be exposed, he's meeting Jesus in secret, but also... The fact that it is at night implies that, that there's some spiritual darkness and that there's blindness in the heart of Nicodemus. Right? But Nicodemus speaks. Notice what he says. He's respectful. He refers to Jesus as rabbi. And he also recognizes that there's something different about Jesus. Now it seems likely that he was a part of the many who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing from chapter 2, verse 23. We looked at that last week. But remember Jesus' response to the many. He did not what? Entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. In other words, Jesus knew that most of the people following him at this point were there to see the magic show. And it seems that Nicodemus might have been one of those people as well. Maybe. But watch how Jesus engages this. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He is blind to the reality of who he is. He doesn't even own his own observations. Notice that it says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. This is similar to saying, well, I have this friend who, when all along we know you're talking about yourself, right? And then Jesus speaks. Verses 3 through 8, check it out. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So much in this portion of Scripture, like so much. There's no real question being asked here, if you catch that. But Jesus sees an opportunity to speak light into darkness, to unveil what his signs really mean, and to explain where true belief really comes from. See, Jesus says that one must be born again, right? This is a term that we have heard a lot if we've been in evangelical circles at all. It's also a term that's been used pejoratively to, to speak ill against evangelicals. But, but we're not going to go there at all. We're going to actually try to figure out what does this mean? What does John mean? What does Jesus mean when he uses this word? In, in theological terms, we're going to get a little bit technical for a while. This is what we understand as regeneration or the new birth. Those are theological terms. And it is the prerequisite to both seeing and entering the kingdom of God. You can't do either of those things unless you have been born again. In other words, Jesus is teaching us something, teaching us that something new has to occur in us if we are to be granted access to the kingdom of God. But there's more here as there typically is with John. See, born again can also mean born from above. In fact, that is probably what Jesus is getting at. You can't see the kingdom unless you've been born from above. You can't enter the kingdom unless you've been born from above. But Nicodemus, see, he doesn't hear above. He hears again, which is why he responds the way he does. What does he say, right? He says, he says how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, see, the first is obvious, right? Nicodemus just doesn't understand. And it sounds like he's trying to deflect from his lack of understanding with some sarcasm. Who's done this? Right? You just kind of, you kind of like work your way out of a situation by, by being a jerk. And, and Nicodemus is being a jerk. He's being sarcastic. He's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, Jesus. This guy, you can't, be, right? Like, Nicodemus has no idea what's going on, but he's trying to save face. But the second thing is a little bit more subtle. 
more often than not, when we deflect, there's something going on underneath the surface. Nicodemus has dedicated his entire life to being someone who gets it, who understands. And up until he met Jesus, he was probably convinced that he did understand. But what I imagine is going through his head as he's having this conversation with a man who he knows is sent from God because he's seen his work, he's probably thinking, how can I change who I am? How can I turn the clock back? How in the world can I get a do-over? Right, if what you're saying is true, Jesus, then, then I'm a lost cause because we get one life to live and I have chosen my path for better or for worse. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And that's the thing about Jesus. You see, he knows and he hears what's going on beneath the surface. He understands that all of the reasons we give for not entrusting ourselves to him has more to do with our own brokenness than anything else. How can I forget all that I have done in my past? How can anyone, let alone God, forgive me for the time I... whatever... You see, Jesus wouldn't be inviting me into his family if he really knew who I was. For the follower of Jesus, maybe you're thinking that he doesn't know all the stuff. Or maybe all the stuff, whatever shame you're carrying, has so crippled your walk with Jesus that you barely have the stamina to look to him, to embrace him, to fully receive his grace. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Unless one is born of water and of spirit, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and what John is communicating to us is that it's true. We can't enter a second time into our mother's womb. We don't get a do-over because there's something better than that. Track with me here. Because if we got a do-over, 100%, if I was a betting man, we would do the exact same thing. We would do the exact same thing. When I was a kid, I used to say to my mom, I'm like, man, you know what, mom, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Like, I just wouldn't have done it. Right? And everything would be great. And my kids have said things like this to me as well. Because we all kind of think, like, just give us one more chance. Give us one more chance. Even a lot of times, if, if you have children, right, when they ask for another chance, right, if they're already in that mode of, 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 of misbehavior, right, there's a mode, right, they kind of click in, and you're like, oh, we're not going to survive the night, right? They ask for a second, third, fourth chance, but, like, it never really works until finally they just fall asleep. Like, they just keep on doing the wrong thing. Right? We've seen this. We've been a part of this. See, that's not what Jesus is offering. He's not offering us a do-over. He's not saying, all right, give it, a, give it another shot. Give it another shot. And so Nicodemus is wrong. He's right, but he's wrong. We can't enter again into our mother's womb. We can't be born anew if, if we are old. Like, we, like this body, this life, we don't get a do-over. But what he is offering and what he's trying to articulate, especially as he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, is what was promised all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36. If you have your Bibles, I also have it on the screen. Turn with me there because this is, this is the stuff. Check it out. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel was a prophet speaking to Israel. And he says this in verses 22 through 28. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came. And so, and so God is, is speaking to the people who have profaned his name in front of the nations. Like they embarrassed him in front of the neighbors, right? Like they embarrassed mom and dad in front of the neighbors is kind of what's going on here. 
He's like, I'm not going to do. What I'm about to tell you, this isn't so much about you, but it has everything to do with me. And some of us might be thinking like, oh, that's kind of messed up. But no, it's God, so it's not. But follow with me here. Check it out. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you, what does it say? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, my Holy Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. See, what is going on here is that the people of Israel have profaned the name of Yahweh. They embarrassed him in the presence of all the nations. And how does God plan to respond? How does God plan to respond? Not by just smiting them and, and kicking them off of the face of the earth, but rather by reconstituting them and calling them from the nations, from all the countries, by sprinkling them with water and giving them a new heart and a new spirit by removing the old and the cherry on top, his Holy Spirit within us. See, this is the point. We don't get a do-over. We get an entirely new nature that comes from above. What was dead comes to life. What was old passes away. Do you understand the difference between a do-over and an entirely new nature? That's what Jesus is getting at. That's the point he's trying to make. Because if we got a do-over, we would fumble the ball and fall every single time. Guaranteed. But Jesus isn't saying, I'm giving you a do-over. He is saying, I am making you an entirely new creation. I am making you an entirely new creation. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to read a good amount of text, but it's worth it. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We, in, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. That breath that's blowing around in this passage, that's the Holy Spirit. That passage is about the very thing that Jesus is getting at. The new birth that we will experience because the breath of God is breathed into our lungs. 
dead, what was once dead, those of us walking around with no clue as to where we were to go, lost sheep, gone astray, wandering throughout the world, God is calling us home by his spirit through the work of his son and breathing life into our lungs. Born again, that's what this is about, Redeemer Fellowship. Born from above. That's what this is about. That's what John wants us to understand. That's what Jesus is preaching to Nicodemus. And that's why Jesus is kind of like, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't know this stuff? Bro, come on. Come on. You got to know this stuff. You were brought up on this stuff. I'm here. Everything you were thinking about. Everything you were teaching about, I'm here. That's what's going on. And you know what's so cool? Check it out. As he talks about the Holy Spirit, back to John chapter 3. He says, do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born from above. And, and I want us to start thinking about it like that, right? Let's start getting this born again idea out of our mind because Jesus is talking about being born from above. Being born from the life that is in heaven with God. That's what he's getting at. Okay, so let's, let's keep that in our brains as we read this. Do not marvel that I said you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the point that Jesus is trying to make there is that, is that we can't contain the Spirit. We can't dictate where he's going to show up. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, I don't understand how that all plays out. And I don't think we're supposed to fully understand how that all plays out. But what I do know is that salvation is of God and that the Holy Spirit breathes new life into the lungs of those who bend their knee and entrust themselves to King Jesus. That I know for a fact. That's what the scripture teaches. That's what I've experienced and that's what many in this room have experienced. A new nature, not a do-over. A new nature. It's different. And you know you have a new nature because all of a sudden you start to realize there were things I used to enjoy that I don't want to do it anymore. Or you might enjoy them, but you feel immediately horrible about it. Right? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the new man. That's wrestling with, right? Remember we talk about like what, what does it mean to be, to be a follower of Jesus. We are saints, but we still speak with the accent of a, sin, of a sinner. And so, and so when that new man rises up, that's our broken English kind of coming out, right? right? My, my grandmother and my grandfather, they would, they would sit and talk to me for, for my grandfather especially, and, and, I, and I would give anything to have one of those conversations again. But he would talk to me for hours, and he would talk about his garden, and he would talk about his, his time in Italy, and he would talk about olive oil, and he would talk, I mean everything, he would just talk. But half the time I didn't know what he was saying because he spoke in such a thick Italian accent. And I was like six, and he would like sit me down, I mean, to completely deviate from the course, he would like sit me down and my friends for like an hour, and we're just like, hey man, we wanna just go play like baseball. <laughs> Neither here nor there. But that's what happens, right? Those struggles, it's the old man kind of creeping in. It's the accent of a sinner that's still creeping in, that we're still not fully, we haven't yet fully assimilated to our new kingdom identity. Oh, but we're, but we're alive and well. We're alive and well. Text goes on. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Verse 9, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I have told you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now I want to focus specifically on verses 14 and 15. See, Jesus closes this conversation with Nicodemus by referencing a story from the book of Numbers. There was, there was 
There was judgment placed upon the people of Israel. Snakes were all throughout the land, biting them, killing them, and, and they, wanted, they wanted a savior. They wanted salvation. And God says to Moses, lift up a snake, a bronze snake on a staff, and, and have your people look at that, and they will be healed. And, and so what Jesus does as he's interpreting this, he's saying, he's saying, I'm the one that needs to be lifted up. And we talked about this last week, I believe, that when we see John using that phrase, lifted up, he's referring directly to what? The crucifixion. And so the point that Jesus is making, that Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross. And in order for anyone to be, to be forgiven, to be born again, to be brought into eternal life, they need to entrust themselves to him and to what he's doing. And he uses this phrase, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And, and a better translation for eternal life is, is the life of the age to come. The life of the age to come. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, so, so grab hold of that phrase, and we'll look at that in just a minute. The text continues in verses 16 through 21. What we have here is, is John, the gospel writer. He's reflecting on the story he just shared about Jesus and Nicodemus. All right, so some of your Bibles, if you have a red letter edition, you might see continued red letters, but, uh, but I'm, I'm suggesting that these are no longer the words of Jesus, but these are the words of John. Uh, the text seems to indicate that a little bit more clearly than it continuing to be the words of John. But that's not really entirely important. Um, but what we have here is John interpreting the events and applying them now to us. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Whatever does not believe is condemned already. Lost my spot. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A lot of things going on here. Right. First thing, John starts this section with a word that is kind of working double duty. It says, for God so loved the world. Now, the first way to understand this passage is to see that God giving his son is the manner or way in which he loves the world. For God so loved the world in this way by giving his son. Right? In other words, John is explaining what the lifting up of Jesus means. It's directly tied to the will of God the Father, and it was the will of God to crush him, as it says in Isaiah. Now, the second way to understand this passage is to see the degree to which God loved the world. For God loved the world so much, the degree, the de the degree to which he loved the world is demonstrated in the fact that he gave his one and only son. And so, so we have options as to the way God loved the world or the degree to which God loved the world. And you're probably wondering, well, which is it? What's the right answer? And what we know of John is what? He's into what sort of meanings? He's into double meanings, right? And so John is, is trying to imply both. Right? This is about how God loved the world and the degree, to, the, the degree to which he loved the world. The giving of Jesus is the way in which God loved the world and also shows how deep his love goes. And what does the giving of his son provide? Well, for those who believe, for those who entrust themselves to the person and work of Christ, they are given eternal life, the life of the age to come life of the age to come. See, John is further explaining the new birth. He's further explaining our regeneration. He's further explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what are we actually talking about here? When we talk about the new birth, we are talking about what takes place when those who are dead are made alive in Christ Jesus. We are talking about this work of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, creating life where there was death. See, that's what's happening. He's creating life where there was death. And the wonder of this life, what I want us to wrap our minds around is that, yes, it is eternal, meaning that it will go on forever and ever, but that's not the full story. And I think we've been cheated a little bit. 
I think we've been cheated a little bit because, because I don't think we fully understand the depth of what eternal life is, is getting at, the depth of what the life of the age to come really means. See, this life we receive when the Spirit of God breathes into our lifeless lungs is a life that originates from somewhere that is entirely other. It is a life that originates in the realms of new creation where God is. This is what needs to be talked about when we're discussing things like eschatology, the study of the end of the age. See, we can't worry ourselves about the timing of the rapture, about who the Antichrist is, marks of the beast, or whatever. All of that might be fun to talk about, but the point is that those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We are breathing life from another realm. You guys catching that? I want us to see the, the, the bigness of this. I want us to kind of be kind of scratching our heads a little bit like, John, are you okay? Like, I want you to kind of be worried about me right now because it's, that's how big what we're talking about is. That, that the spirit that we have that indwells us, that, that resides in our midst, is our access to the life of the age to come. We're drawing it into, uh, into this realm by faith. You tracking with that? And what that means is that we're like Marty McFly, living in 1955 with clothing from the 1980s. That's the point. We are living in the here and now, but we originate from the realms of new creation, from the heavenly places where we are seated with Christ. And we become the place where heaven and earth come together in union with one another, both individually and corporately. New creation means life with God through the power of the Spirit, a power poured forth, if you remember, in Acts by the resurrected Christ. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. To impart this life from the age to come to all who believe. He did not come with the purpose of condemning the world. It says it right there in the text. I did not come to condemn the world. That's not why he came. And there have been too many people who have decided that Jesus is all about bloodshed. Right? Like bringing down the hammer. We're going to get to the hammer in a few seconds, but he doesn't revel in the hammer. It's a necessary consequence, but he doesn't revel in the hammer. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to shine light into the darkness. He came to bring life, resurrection, life. And there's only one prerequisite. We have to believe. We have to hear the words of the gospel. And we must entrust ourselves to the one who has done the work. And then check out what happens. Whoever does what is true, verse 21, comes to the light. Why? so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those of us who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus, we will do what is true, we will come to the light, and that's what the good works which God prepared for us to walk and do, they demonstrate where we are from and to whom we belong. The life we live in Christ by the power of the Spirit, as we love God and love neighbor, it demonstrates where we are from and to whom we belong. And that's the thing. In demonstrating where we're from and who we belong to, we might stand out. People might have some questions, right? We're Marty McFly in 1955, clothed in 1980s clothing. We stand out, or at least we ought to stand out. That's kind of the point. And, and, then, and then what happens as a result of that standing out, as we live lives of love, grace, compassion, holiness, caring for the needs of the broken, the poor, the oppressed, caring for the needs of one another, caring about the holiness and righteousness of God, all of a sudden people start to look and be like, what's with, what's with that dude? What's, what's with him? What's with her? Like, why don't they, why don't they look like us? And then, and then we have this opportunity 
to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But see, I, I firmly believe that, that any sort of progress and mission, any sort of fruit-bearing in evangelism is, is going to be directly tied to, to the love and compassion of the saints. Are we living in a manner that reflects this other world, this, this life of the age to come, so that people are like, I want that life. What is that? Now, people might not want it, because I don't know if you remember, there are people who, who love the darkness, like they love it. And, and, and the light, the light makes them angry because, because when light is shined upon them, all of a sudden they start looking and be like, whoa, I'm, I'm, I'm dark. Oof, that's evil. I don't want to see that. Turn the lights off. Turn the lights off. I feel much better when I can't see that the things I, I enjoy are actually quite evil. Right? That's the point. And so, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a twofold response to how we live our lives when we are living the life of the age to come. It's either going to be received because people are like, I want that, and that's the Holy Spirit blowing around where it wills. And then there's going to be this pushback because people are going to be like, I don't want none of that because I, I, I'm, I'm very content. As long as I don't know my deeds are evil, I'm very happy with them. Right? That's the twofold response we're going to receive. But it's a life of love of mercy, of compassion, of holiness and righteousness that is drawn from, from, the, from the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and, and then we cultivate that relationship. I'm way off script right now, but I, I feel like it's important to talk about because some of us might be wondering, well, well I don't get it because I'm, I'm walking, I, I believe, and, and I, don't, I don't feel as though like the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is really, is really doing anything. It, it's not really, I don't, I don't feel any sort of closeness to God. I, my life doesn't reflect a closeness to God. Uh, if you have a, a, a second, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going off script. This series has, has made my sermons a little bit longer, so I apologize. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says this to the, to the the people of Ephesus. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. Some of your versions might be said, said filled with the Spirit. I think a better translation is filled by the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so in this short passage, what Paul wants his readers to understand is that there is a particular way in which they should walk. There's a, there's a wise way of walking and a foolish way of walking. He's saying walk wisely. And how do we walk wisely? Well, we walk wisely through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we cultivate such a power? How do, we, how, do we, how do we put our sails up in such a way that it catches the wind of the Spirit so that we might live in a manner that reflects this, this life of the age to come? Well, he tells us. He gives us a list of things to do. Right? A lot of people will read this as... as Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody, giving thanks and submitting to one another as the result of, of being filled with the fullness of God by the Holy Spirit. But, but I submit to you that grammatically, that doesn't make sense. Grammatically, it makes sense that these are the way in which we cultivate being filled by the Spirit with the fullness of God. And so how are we filled by the Spirit, both individually and corporately? Well, Paul gives us a list of things to do. He says, worship. He says, worship God. Be with one another and sing praises to God. Sing hymns of glory to God. And then he says, he says, he says give thanks always for everything. So live a life of gratitude. Remind yourself of, of the good things that God has entrusted to you, that has blessed you with. And guess what? When you do that sort of thing, oh, I'm going to fill you with the fullness of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. That's what the text says. And then he says this other thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the, the culminating way, right? This is a, a list of progression, 
right? I'm being technical here, I apologize. I wrote a paper on this, so I'm excited about it. But the point is, is that these are, these are participles of means that are progressing towards like a, a climax. And the climax is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so how do we cultivate this life in the spirit? How are we filled with the fullness of God by the power of the Spirit? By worshiping God, by being grateful for all that he has entrusted to us, and living lives of humility within the body of Christ. That's how we do it. That's how we catch the wind of the Spirit. That's massively important to understand. And that's such good news that, that like Paul and John and, and the Bible doesn't leave us kind of scratching our heads like, okay, cool, how do I... How do I do this? He actually tells us there's a way to cultivate this relationship with God, to deepen our communion with God, to make us more in step with the Spirit. And it's a life of worship, gratitude, and submission and humility to one another. And then the rest of the chapter is about what that looks like in the context of a marriage in the context of, of, of a worker and employee relationship, in the context of a parent and child relationship. That's the point of that. And that's what we need to understand as we read this text. Those of us who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, now we need to, to live in such a way to cultivate it, to cultivate that walk with God. And, 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 and John gets that. John the Baptist gets that. Check out what happens here. Verse 22, back to John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there. There was a lot of water. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. That's a little time reference for us to, to kind of wrap our minds around what's going on. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan. Remember that guy? To whom you bore witness, the one that you kept telling us about? Well, look, he's baptizing. And everyone's going over there. John answered, A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, both Jesus and John the Baptist are baptizing, the text says. This is the only place where we see Jesus baptizing, and, and chapter 4, verse 2, indicates that it wasn't actually him doing the baptizing, but it was his disciples. But the point of the, of the passage lies in the discussion between Jesus, um, between John and his disciples. They know that Jesus is the one that John had been talking about, the one you bore witness to. They get it. Like, he's the guy, right? He's the guy you've been talking about. But they also like being a part of a growing movement. Right? They like being the main idea. They like the megachurch life, if you will. And they don't want to lose it. And so what do they say? They're all going to him. John, do something. You were here first. They're all going to him. They don't get it. But John sees this as an opportunity to teach, and what he teaches is a lesson we all need to hear. First, whatever we have comes from God. Right? Whatever we have comes from God. That's what he says. I'm reminded of Job, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John has had this incredible privilege to play a role in the drama of redemption, but he's not the main character. Second thing he wants us to understand, we are not God. Look at what he says, I am not the Christ. When we go to a wedding, we are guests. Ladies, do you wear white to a wedding? No, that's weird. And if you've done that, I'm sorry, you shouldn't have. I'm going to get like an email. Why? Because it takes away from the person who's getting married. They're the point of the day. Right? It's kind of like the best man who gets up and, and, and gives his speech to try and draw all the attention onto himself. I did it at my brother's wedding. <laughs> the point that John is trying to make, he's not God, 
We're not God. The story's not about us. And finally, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that's the overall point of this chapter, to be born of God, to have new creation life breathed into our lungs by the Holy Spirit means that the story is no longer about us. We have been folded into a new story, one where we point to the main character in everything we do. And the best way to draw people's gaze toward the main character is to embody the sort of life the main character embodied, which is a life of sacrificial love and humility. Here's the story, and here's how we play a part in it, by believing and following Jesus. The story is about Christ, and we play our role by believing and following. And how do we follow? By loving God and loving neighbor. It's that simple. It's that simple. And this is what both John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer want us to understand. There is a true story of the world, and that story is about Christ. He is above all. Check out what it says, the rest of the chapter, verses 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, the life of the age to come. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He is above all. That means he's first. And if he is above all, there's nothing that can replace him. Therefore, there is only one response, to receive his testimony. And in receiving his testimony, we are declaring that God is true. We are hearing the words of God. He is the one who possesses the life of the age to come. And he's offering it to anyone who might believe. He's offering it to anyone who might believe. But verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now we need to hear what's being said here. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus, receive eternal life, new creation life, or we can choose disobedience, and we will not see life. And the wrath of God remains on us. If I'm honest, I don't love passages about wrath. Just don't. I'm not that guy. I don't get a thrill out of people being cast into eternal separation from God. I I don't. I firmly believe that the kindness of God leads to repentance. But that's the point here. God is revealing to us where disobedience leads Because he did not come into the world to condemn it. He came into the world with new creation life in his hands and he is offering it to us. He wants us to grab hold of it by faith. This is kindness. This is love. By warning us of where disobedience leads, that is the kindest and most loving thing he could do. And so we need to hear the words that are being proclaimed in this passage. Life is ours for the taking. Resurrection life is ours for the taking. We can grab a hold of it by faith. But those of us who love darkness, well, that's where we're going to remain. And the wrath of God will remain on those who disobey. That's what the text says. I don't love passages about wrath, but we need to understand the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches us. But the gift of God is eternal life, life from the age to come. What I hope we walk away with this morning, I hope we understand that the love of God is such that he gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes might have everlasting life. My hope is that if there's anyone in this room, anyone who is listening online, that if you do not yet know this Jesus, that today would be the day you entrust yourself to him, that you would flee from the wrath to come. My hope is that if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, that you would see in this passage a kindness and a love that surpasses anything we can possibly 
wrap our minds around. That this kindness and love would inform how we live out our lives as followers of Jesus. That we would recognize that when the Bible says that God loved the world, that means that every tribe, tongue, nation, race, socioeconomic class, gender, political affiliation, and if I am missing a category, then please fill in the blank. He loves them. And he desires their salvation. And if that is true, that fact alone must dramatically impact and affect how we engage the world around us. If that's true, then every man-made barrier that keeps people apart, that prevents us from stepping into the stories of others, must be obliterated. And we must go. And we must proclaim the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. Every barrier, every single one. The one tribe and the one team to which we belong that trumps all other tribes and teams and identities is the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? Our position as followers of Jesus is to extend the hope of the kingdom. That we would meet the needs of people and that we would trust that the wind of the spirit blows where it wants and that when it blows incredible things happen in some of the most unlikely spaces. Our job is not to make people do moral things. Our job is to tell them of the love of God in both word and deed. Trusting that the spirit is more powerful than any stronghold and sin that might be entangling them. This is our role, Redeemer. This is our job. So my my prayer is that we would posture ourselves to be conduits of God's grace and compassion so that the world might catch a glimpse of who God is. And as I said before, if you are sitting in this room or listening on the live stream, God loved you that he gave his only son and that if you believe that and entrust yourself to him, you will have eternal life. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be folded into the family of God. New birth means adoption. That means we have a new father. We are folded into the family with Jesus as our older brother. Redeemer Fellowship, that is good news. That is good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the familiar passages. There's a reason why they're familiar, because there's power in a passage like that where you teach us of your love and your grace and your mercy not only how you loved us but how deep your love is for us we sing songs like how deep the father's love for us oh father the love that you have for your people the love that you have for the lost sheep of your fold is so deep it's so immense And Father, what you offer is new creation life. Thank you so much. Father, help us. Help us by your spirit to put the death, the deeds of the flesh, Lord God. Thank you that you show us how. Thank you that we can worship you. Thank you that you receive our worship when it's performed in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we just love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for our salvation. I pray that all of our hearts this morning would be changed through the preaching of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.